A journalist moves to picturesque Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and stumbles onto a story that will eventually turn into one of the biggest cases of fraud and murder that the state has ever seen. But if she hadn't followed her instincts and began sharing breaking news on an independent podcast she created, how long would it have taken for people to realize just how deep corruption ran in the Murdoch family? Today, we're previewing the new memoir out by Mandy Matney, journalist and podcaster at Luna Shark Media. Plus, we take a look at the latest news regarding Alec Murdoch's murder conviction. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 77. A preview of Mandy Matney's book, Blood on Their Hands, and an update on the Alec Murdoch murder trial. While I was researching upcoming book releases on NetGalley this past summer, I noticed Mandy Matney had a memoir coming out about her involvement with the Alec Murdoch case. I immediately requested the book and was excited to get an advanced copy of it. I had listened to her show, The Murdoch Murders Podcast, and knew that she had worked in the local media around South Carolina. I wanted to get her take on how she first found out about Paul Murdoch's involvement in the boat crash on Archer's Creek the suspicious deaths of Stephen Smith and Gloria Satterfield, and how she felt when she discovered Paul and Maggie Murdoch had been murdered. Here's the official synopsis of the book. Years before the name Alec Murdoch was splashed across every major media outlet in America, local South Carolina journalist Mandy Matney had an instinct that something wasn't right in the Low Country. The powerful Murdoch dynasty had dominated rural South Carolina for generations. No one dared cross them. When Mandy and her reporting partner Liz Farrell looked closer at a fatal boat crash involving the storied family's teenage son Paul, they began to uncover a web of mysteries surrounding the deaths of the Murdoch's longtime housekeeper and a young man found slain years earlier on a backcountry road. Just as their investigations were unfolding, the brutal double murder of Maggie and Paul Murdoch rocketed Alec Murdoch onto the international stage. From the newsroom to the courtroom, to the kitchen table studio where Mandy recorded her number one Murdoch Murders podcast, Blood on Their Hands is a propulsive true crime saga, an empathetic work of investigative journalism, and an exoridation of the good old boy systems that enabled a network of criminals. Here are my thoughts on the book. Blood on Their Hands is a memoir that journalist and podcaster Mandy Matney wrote after four years of reporting on Alec Murdoch, his family, and their numerous related crimes. It details how she first became aware of the Murdochs after Mallory Beach went missing after the boat crash on Archer's Creek, the mysterious death of Stephen Smith that many people felt was connected to the Murdochs, the death of the Murdoch's housekeeper, and finally, the deaths of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. With dogged reporting, Mandy Matney and a few other diligent South Carolina reporters would realize 
Everything led to the fact that Alec Murdoch had been abusing narcotics and embezzling money from innocent people for years before his crimes caught up to him. In the book, Matney shares how she was a journalist who had gotten her start right out of college as the editor of a small town newspaper in a Missouri military town. This was a job with a big title and small salary to match, where she had to beg the corporate office for basic things she needed to do her job, such as a freelance budget for writers or a new camera. She later moved on to a job as a digital editor of a newspaper in Illinois, with the goal of increasing the traffic and page views for the paper's website. After a few years, facing many of the same frustrations she had been dealing with at her previous paper, Matney opted to look for a job in a warmer climate. The Island Packet offered her a job as a digital projects producer. The Island Packet was owned by McClatchy, the second largest newspaper publisher in the country. This is where she learned the importance of meeting those page views goals. As each reporter was responsible for this and their advancement within the company was tied to this initiative. She quickly found that alligator and shark stories from the coast had the tendency to go viral. This is where she met Liz Farrell, a reporter and editor who now works alongside Matney on her podcast team. When Matney first started her job at the Island Packet, she immediately saw a difference in their newsroom environment compared to places she'd worked in the past. She said there were no burned out reporters forced to work second jobs on the weekends. There were no disgruntled readers showing up at my desk to complain about typos. Instead, there was a pervasive vibe of optimism and importance about the place. She had been at the Island Packet a few years, working as the breaking news editor, when the boat crash on Archer's Creek occurred. It was Liz Farrell who first alerted Matney that she had an odd feeling about the story surrounding the crash involving six teens, one of whom remained missing at the time. The boat crash had occurred in Beaufort County, near Paris Island, while the passengers on the boat were all from Hampton County which did not fall under the coverage area of the island packet. The reporters noticed that there was no official press release available right away. They also couldn't help but notice the online chatter about who was really driving the boat. This was the first time Matney and her coworkers heard the name Paul Murdoch. She quickly became obsessed with learning as much as she could about the Murdoch family, because the more she researched, the more she uncovered. She writes in her memoir, but the Island Packet had a strict rule that they would only print names attached to criminal stories when they were felony cases, unless the accused person was in a position of public trust. While reading her story, I developed a new respect for Mandy Matney. There were many roadblocks that she encountered along the way to uncovering all the pieces of this story, from sexist attitudes in the newsroom, power players affecting how her stories were covered or not covered, and having her stories taken away from her and given to male reporters at related, larger, corporate newspapers. Eventually, she was wooed away from the island packet by Fitz News, a local independent news media outlet where she continued her coverage of all things related to the Murdochs. What she encountered along the way sounds like something straight out of a Hollywood film script, from anonymous sources contacting her, to online trolls sending her degrading messages, to being followed by law enforcement on a dark country road when she met with Stephen Smith's sister, to Alec Murdoch's own attorneys making fun of her in court. Her mental health took a toll while she was determined to see the story through. 
I had noticed that she wasn't one of the reporters who made regular appearances on news media during the trial coverage, and now I can understand why. She developed severe anxiety while covering the family's crimes and dealing with the constant criticism and harassment. I will admit, when I first listened to Matney's podcast, The Murdoch Murders, I had already started this podcast, and I was a little turned off by the editing style. I could tell that she would record a sentence or two, stop, and then re-record. I found the constant interruptions distracting, and I also wasn't sure what to make of her complaining about the messages she was getting about people not liking her voice. She explains in the memoir that she first started the podcast because she had so much more information to share than she was allowed to in her daily news job with Fitz News, and she didn't know the ins and outs of how to produce a podcast well. Plus, she was doing it on a shoestring budget with the help of her now husband David, which I completely understand. She wanted a little more grace from listeners as she started the podcast, and she felt like the information she was sharing was more important than people not liking her vocal fry. Reading this memoir, I believe people will understand exactly how hard she worked to get the podcast up and running, and she did it with a sense of urgency because the Murdoch story was one that reporters from all over the country latched onto immediately. Quite frankly, she didn't want to be scooped when she'd spent so many years cultivating her sources and doing her due diligence with local residents and law enforcement officials, and I believe readers will sympathize with that. Eventually, Matney went out on her own to start her own podcast production company, figured out how to monetize her content, and reported on the Alec Murdoch trial on her own terms. Along the way, she uncovered other crimes that needed to be covered in South Carolina and teamed up with an attorney to produce a separate podcast called Cup of Justice. Here are a few excerpts that I highlighted in my copy of the book. After an annual review with her boss at the Island Packet, when she was told she would only receive a 1% pay raise that year, Matney described her emotional response. She writes, Corporate journalism was a broken system that was beyond repair. While the executives at the top made a million dollars a year plus enormous monthly stipends, the reporters and media workers actually producing the product were told they needed to get by on pennies. Anyone, especially women and people of color, who advocated for more was deemed problematic or told they didn't have what it took. They didn't have the passion. I was so sick and tired of the hypocrisy. I made an excuse to leave the office early, and when I got to my car that afternoon, I couldn't stop crying. The tears were for so many things, for the stable career that felt always out of reach, for the ideals of journalism that I believed in wholeheartedly, and for the work on the Murdoch investigation I was aching to do. I cried for Mallory Beach and Stephen and Sandy Smith, for the justice I knew they deserved and that I wasn't sure would ever come. Here's another excerpt from the memoir. There seemed to be no respect for victims among these groups, no awareness that there were real grieving families behind the blood and police reports. They all just thought it was fascinating and gory. People were obsessed with trying to solve the crime, but what they were doing wasn't helping at all. On the contrary, it was causing genuine harm. I couldn't even scan Reddit for gossip about 90 Day Fiancé, my one guilty pleasure, without coming across a thread saying I was a liar and had lost all my sources or that I was having a nervous breakdown. One guy even found my cell phone number and berated me over text. Little by little, I learned to live with a painful truth 
I could filter my messages and block and report for hours a day, but I could never outrun the ugliness. I recommend you check out this memoir by Mandy Matney if you want to get a real behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to become an investigative journalist. I dare say many of the critics of the author would not have had the will or the fortitude to keep working to peel back the many layers of corruption that were eventually revealed within the Murdoch family. Blood on Their Hands, Murder, Corruption, and the Fall of the Murdoch Dynasty will be released on November 14th wherever you purchase your books. And now, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. I'd like to talk about our new sponsor, Terabusi Creek. The company was founded in 2014 when creator Stephanie went on a journey to improve the health of her own skin. The product line features 100% plant-based products made with vegan ingredients and ethically sourced oils and butters. In their wide range of skincare and self-care products, there's a little something to be found for every person on your holiday gift list. With a wide range of bar soaps, sugar scrubs, lotions, and bath bombs in a multitude of scents, you can be sure to mix and match various bath and body products for many different tastes and preferences. If home fragrances are more up your alley, Terabusi Creek's uniquely scented soy candles, wax melts, and refresher sprays will create an inviting and homey vibe for the upcoming cooler weather. All products feature creative colors and textures inspired by Stephanie's love of nature and are non-toxic and perfect for sensitive skin. This winter, I'm eyeing the Cranberry Marmalade Sugar Scrub and Coordinating Cranberry Balsam Lotion. To learn more about Terabusi Creek's products, visit terabusicreek.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're listening to this podcast, you may be interested in learning how to start your own. This past spring, I created a webinar on how to do just that, and it's now being offered as a digital course over at WOW Women on Writing. The pre-recorded 30-minute webinar will teach you examples of different types of podcasts, how to decide on a format, ways to handle the technology necessary for creating a podcast, how to develop your first few episodes, promotion and monetization ideas, and ways you can repurpose your podcast content. I will provide all written materials and resources, including a handout with information discussed in the webinar, along with suggestions for a few different types of podcasts to explore before you get started. Best of all, this webinar only costs $30. You can purchase the course over at wowwomenonwriting.com and click on the classroom tab. I'll also post a link to that in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. I want to talk next about another memoir that was recently released by someone involved with the Alec Murdoch murder trial. Rebecca Becky Hill was serving her first term as the Colton County Clerk of Court when Alec Murdoch was found guilty of murdering his wife and son on March 3rd of this year. By mid-July, she had published a memoir about the experience titled Behind the Doors of Justice, The Murdoch Murders. According to an article that ran in the Greenville News, the book was co-written with Neil R. Gordon and featured photos taken by his wife, Melissa Brinson Gordon. Melissa Gordon had gone to Walterboro, South Carolina to document Alec Murdoch's trial when she met Becky Hill. A friendship formed and Melissa introduced Becky to Neil, who would become her co-author. Neil Gordon told the Greenville News that the two got together and wrote 42,000 words of a memoir told from Hill's perspective. 
The book includes the backstory on Hill's personal journey from becoming the Colton County Clerk of Court to her experience working on the trial, her description of visiting the crime scene at Moselle, backstory on the presiding judge Clifton Newman, and of course, information about the defendant himself, Alec Murdoch. The book also shares how Hill discovered her grandfather and Alec Murdoch's grandfather were involved in an illegal business almost 70 years ago. Last month, the South Carolina Court of Appeals granted Alec Murdoch's motion to suspend his conviction and sent the case back to circuit court to consider allegations of jury tampering by the Colton County Clerk, Becky Hill. Alec Murdoch is currently serving two consecutive life sentences in a state prison for the murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. He pleaded guilty to nearly two dozen fraud and money laundering charges last month in a federal courtroom in Charleston. According to CNN, that plea was related to the scheme Alec was involved in where he defrauded multiple personal injury clients and laundered more than $7 million in funds. He was accused of using those settlement funds for his own personal benefit, using the proceeds to pay off cash loans, pay for personal expenses, and make cash withdrawals. His attorneys, Jim Griffin and Dick Harputlian, filed a motion to suspend the murder conviction appeal, which he requested just days after the jury returned their verdict so they could move forward with requesting a new trial. Their motion for a new trial contained allegations that Becky Hill had tampered with the jury by, quote, advising them not to believe Murdoch's testimony and other evidence presented by the defense, end quote. Three jurors have signed sworn affidavits in this matter. They also claimed Hill had private conversations with the jury foreperson and pressured jurors to come to a quick verdict. Murdoch's attorneys also claimed that the clerk of court tampered with the jury in order to try and secure herself a book deal and media appearances that wouldn't have happened in the event of a mistrial. The defense has asked that Judge Clifton Newman, who presided over the murder trial, be removed from consideration in the evidentiary hearing, arguing that he is not impartial and could be a witness to the jury tampering allegations. Just this week, Hill responded to the jury tampering allegations in a signed affidavit saying numerous misrepresentations and false statements had been made. She said she did not tell jurors not to be fooled by evidence presented by the defense, she did not have private conversations with jurors about the trial, and she did not tell jurors before deliberations that this shouldn't take long. The response included interviews the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division conducted with nine of the 12 jurors. The three who testified otherwise declined to be interviewed. Investigators also interviewed court staff who reported hearing no improper comments or conversations by the clerk of court. I'll keep you posted on the status of Alec Murdoch's appeal as developments occur in the coming months. I'd like to close today by telling you about our Thankful for Missing in the Carolinas listeners giveaway. In honor of us surpassing 150,000 downloads, we're holding a fun giveaway so you can either treat yourself or have some help with holiday shopping. There are multiple ways to enter the Thankful for Missing in the Carolinas listeners giveaway. For your chance to win a $25 Amazon gift card, please enter using the Rafflecopter form on the news page at missinginthecarolinas.com. I'll also post a link about this on our social media.
The giveaway begins today and ends on November 17th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I will pick two winners randomly through Rafflecopter and follow up via email the next day. You must live in the United States to win. Good luck. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.